invite you to take your Bible tonight and turn to two separate places. We're going to look first at 1 Samuel 21, 1 Samuel 21, and then we'll look at Psalm 34. We're going to be looking at, uh, preaching from Psalm 34, but uh, as the heading you'll see in Psalm 34 says, David wrote this on this occasion that we find here in 1 Samuel 21. So if you turn your Bible, 1 Samuel 21. Just to set the historical context, uh, David is a young man, probably in his early 20s. Uh, he was um, anointed to be king in, uh, over Israel by Samuel, probably about seven, eight years ago. And uh, his life has been sort of a story of success after success after that. He, he um, defeated Goliath on the battlefield as a young boy, ends up in Saul's household, and there he um, is blessed richly, and Saul loves him, and then Saul gets jealous of him because David is having more and more victories on the battlefield. People are starting to sing songs about him, and um, it's becoming um, uh, very, very tense until finally Saul tries to kill him, and so 1 Samuel 21 is when uh, Jonathan finally confirms, yes, my father intends to kill you, and David now begins to run. This is the beginning of a lengthy time of a running from Saul. So here we are in 1 Samuel 21. David has um, gone to, to Gath. We're going to pick it up at verse 10. This is a Philistine city. In fact, this is the home of, uh, former home, I should say, of Goliath himself. David rose and fled that day, verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Or is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And Achish sent him away. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And so now let's go to Psalm 34, and we'll read the psalm that David penned on this occasion. Psalm of David, we read at the heading, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, uh, same, same man, uh, so that he drove him out and he went away. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have inspired these by your spirit so that we might be edified and built up in our faith. Oh Lord, I just acknowledge our, my weakness to, to preach, our weakness to hear, our minds are distracted and yet, Lord, these are the very words of God. Man was not intended to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, may make these words then life to us tonight. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message is The Good Life, a Songs from the Cave. Psalm 34 is about living the good life. Um, it's about uh, experiencing the goodness of the Lord, uh, about tasting it so that you're, you're, you're so convinced of the goodness of God that there's a, there's a radiance about you. It's about having protection. It's about lacking nothing. Being blessed, happy is the man who takes refuge in him. But the psalm is written uh, right in the middle of this, this great paradox of the Christian life, which is that um, we... We live the good life in the midst of hard life. Uh, the, the psalm that talks about the, how blessed and happy is the man who takes refuge in him, the very same psalm says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And the Lord is close to, to the brokenhearted. He's near to those who are crushed in spirit. And you might ask the question, well, what good is the refuge if, if there's crushed spirits involved, and, and, uh, and all these afflictions and brokenness. I, I thought Christianity was supposed to help me not have to deal with, with those things. Well, that's not true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I read an interesting article this past week on Ref 21, written by Aaron Denlinger, uh, he was uh, reflecting on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17 where Paul writes about uh, these, this light momentary affliction. 
And, uh, and Denlinger made this point. I hadn't thought of it before, but he, he just points out the, that Paul uses a singular noun there. So he says, um, th- this is intriguing. Paul doesn't say these light momentary afflictions, plural, which would suggest periodic suffering in the life of the Christian. But this light momentary affliction seems to be a reference to the entirety of the Christian's life on this side of eternity. The Christian's life in toto can be characterized as one singular affliction. The whole thing is hard. That's encouraging. I think he's right on. The whole thing is hard. Have you ever thought, maybe as, you, as you've grown up, I just thought it would be easier at this stage. I, I thought I would get the hang of this. I thought I would learn the ropes and I would understand the principles and apply the techniques. And, and as I grew in my awareness of God, my love for God, as I, as I grew in my Christian life, I, just, I, I didn't expect it to be this hard. The whole thing is hard. That will be discouraging to you if you were hoping that Christianity was uh, meant that you don't have to suffer as much. But it'll be very encouraging to you if you're a Christian and you are experiencing the affliction. Because what Psalm 34 does is it, is it assures uh, you and me that, we're, that we are safe in the affliction. It's going to be okay in the affliction. There is, there is comfort and goodness even in the places of grief. And we can have assurance even in the affliction. It's going to be okay. In fact, not only is it going to be okay, there are magnificent things that are true for you and for me in the midst of a hard life. We see that David is writing this uh, psalm uh, after a, a very fearful experience, a devastating experience. Here he's been, he's been uh, anointed to be the king of Israel by Samuel, the great prophet. This is no fluke. This is clearly God's hand on him. He's going to be the king of Israel. And he sees nothing but success as God blesses him and David gives God all the credit. It's by God's hand that he was able to defeat the mighty Philistine Goliath. He gives the credit and the glory to God. It's, it's by God's hand that he's able to, to go out and defeat the Philistines in war, um, where, where David praises God that he's trained my hands for war. It's been a, just a succession of success. And then, and then Saul just, just goes crazy on him and gets jealous of him, and it gets worse and worse and and he throws a spear, and maybe, maybe he just had too much to drink, and he's just angry. What? Uh, and he and Jonathan are trying to figure this out, and so they come up with the scheme, and Jonathan um, says, okay, I'm going to go, and I'm going to talk to Dad, and, uh, and I'll come out. You stay out here, and I'll shoot an arrow and let you know. And that's exactly what happens, and, and he shoots the arrow, and it, and it goes, and, and he sends to the young man to, to go. It's way, way out. You need to go far. And David hears the words and knows that there's no more future for him in Saul's household. He is now on, uh, he's on the run for his life. The king of Israel wants to kill him and can employ the whole army of Israel to that end. And in a sense, David panics and he runs to Gath. Um, for, at least it's not, right, he's, he's, he's not near Saul. Now, if he had thought this through, I, I think this is just 
David panicking and running, and, and here's a safe place uh, where there are lots of people who don't like Saul, and so my, my friend is your friend, your enemy, my enemy, whatever. He's going to go hang out there. But then some of the guys say, wait a minute, I recognize this guy. Isn't this David? Isn't this the guy they sing the songs about? Isn't this the guy that brought down Goliath? He's killed a lot of our men. And David's terrified. He's terrified. He knows fear. Where is he going to go? Saul is seeking his life, and now he's in Gath, and, and his life is in grave danger. And so he, he, he runs again and ends up in this cave of Adullam. And there he writes Psalm 34. I think what this psalm does for us is it just sort of unfolds the mystery. How can you be happy in God in a cave? How can you be delighting in God and, 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 and blessing God and, and telling people, come and, and join me in magnifying the Lord? How do you do that in a cave? And the way you do that, when everything else is crumbling in your life, in your world, is you just have a clear sense of the goodness of God. Absolute conviction that God is good. And so let's just follow the psalm through. We won't be able to hit every verse here. There's, it's, it's, it's a bit too long. And, um, but I, I want us to really catch the flavor of it as David begins with this confession, that a, a commitment of what he's going to do with his life. I will bless the Lord at all times, in every circumstance, in the good times and in the bad times. Whether I am the anointed king or whether I am hunted like a rabbit, uh, I'm going to bless the Lord. His praise is going to be on my mouth. Whatever else happens in my life, I'm going to be a man in this world who boasts in God. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. He's just throwing it all out there. This is who he's going to be. This is how he's going to live. And, and God, can de- God will take care of the circumstances. But as for David, as for for David's commitment, what he's going to do with his life, whatever the Lord had for him in in the future, I'm going to bless the Lord. His praise is going to be in my mouth, and I'm going to boast in my heart. That's a wonderful stance. That's a wonderful conviction. And, And once you've made that conviction, you're going to want to invite others to join you, and David does exactly that. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let let us exalt his name together. He has a vision, you see, when David commits himself to the hand of God, the care of God, he has an overwhelming conviction that that's enough. And he sees people who are distressed and worried. Do you remember the people that showed up at the cave of Adullam with him? Did you pick that up? Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. He had a bunch of miserable people around him. And David looks at these people and he calls them, come join me in magnifying the Lord right in the middle of your circumstance. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Well, how, did, how do you get there? Have you ever just been in a spiritual funk and, and you, you know it's not where you're supposed to be? You, you read your Bible and, and even like a psalm like this and, um, and your life, it's not nearly this dire, but there's dire things about it, and, but you don't know how to get from here to here. 
from where you are, sort of in your spiritual funk, your self-pity, your, uh, your fears, your anxieties, maybe even just the grief? How do, you, how do you move over to, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. How do you get there? We think you get there by changing the circumstances. That's not how it happened for David. He's in the circumstance. David tells us how he got there, and then he calls us to follow him. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord. Such a simple thing, and yet how often isn't it nearly the very last thing we think of? (laughs) We get to work on protecting ourselves. We get to work on fixing others, trying to resolve the issue and, and uh, take care of the crisis, whatever it might be, make ourselves feel better. Uh, but, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless us in those endeavors. David sought the Lord. Lord, I, I got to have you. Whatever else is going on, whatever you have in mind, I sought the Lord. Lord, you know my condition, you know my need, you know the fear. My life is in your hands. Lord, honor your name. This is, think about how, how the Lord's prayer begins, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I sought the Lord. God, honor your name. And he, and he answered me and, and he delivered me from all my fears. You see, David knew what fear was like. He was terrified there in Gath. But David's discovered that, that we have a solution as those who belong to God. We have a God who we can turn to. If you just notice in Psalm 34, the, the word that shows up more than any other word is the Lord. Nineteen times in these verses, David refers to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I sought the Lord. That's the key. Because those who look to him, he says in verse 5, are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him are radiant. Makes you think maybe of Moses coming down the mountain after he'd been there receiving the Ten Commandments and he comes down and people couldn't look at him because his face was shining. Have you ever seen Christians shine? I hope you have. I have. And they're often people that you wouldn't expect to shine. They're, they're in a dire circumstance. I, I, I remember being in Haiti the first time and seeing people that had nothing in terms of economic benefits. And yet when you talked about Jesus, their faces shone. I hope you've seen people shine that way. Have you ever just met someone and, you, and in your mind, I bet that person's a Christian. There's something about their, cont- their countenance that radiates hope and peace and, and joy and comfort. David said that comes from looking to the Lord. People who have their, who have their eyes fixed on the Lord or in the presence of the Lord, that their faces are radiant and they'll never, be, they'll never be ashamed. But then he continues his testimony, verse 6, this poor man cried. The, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This poor man, that's a really good description of what it means to be a Christian. And those are the people that David is surrounded by. They're poor people. They're in debt. They're distressed in soul. Life has not worked for them. This poor man cried. 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. I don't know this for certain, but I think this was the text that was preached for my grandpa Van Dyke at his funeral. I, I can't, every time I read it, I think of him. A hard life, hard life, devastating losses. And yet the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. You see, David has just um, experienced that God has a, a passion for those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. The, the, the proud, the people who've got it together, the people who don't really need much help, the people who come to God sort of as an accessory to a pretty good life. The, the, the Lord, he does, he's not that concerned. He doesn't hear them. He does, doesn't save them. But when the poor cry, when the poor in spirit, those who are bitter and afflicted and lowly and oppressed, when you've got, we got nothing to bring to the table and you cry to the Lord, David says, the Lord hears that. Cast all your anxiety on him. He cares for you. He cares for you. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. And David then is compelled once again to invite others. This is what I've done. This is what I've experienced. But then he says, oh, you, taste, see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, he, David with... with all earnestness, he really wants those that have gathered, uh, these bitter, poor, oppressed people, he wants them to experience what he's experienced. This is an experience verse. Sometimes we can be a little nervous about encouraging people maybe in, in uh, experiences of the goodness of God. Or uh, We like doctrine. It's, it's steady. It's stable. It's there. You can write it down. You can research it. You can footnote it. Um, it's, it's just there, nice. And that's great. Praise God for his doctrine. But see, David wants us to taste the doctrine. It does no good if you don't taste it. It's like going to a fine restaurant and, and, and your friend orders the steak and, and, uh, and takes, a, takes a bite and uh, it's, it, you can tell from the expression on his face, it's fantastic. And, uh, and you sit there, and uh, you don't eat. And he says, oh, go ahead and have a, you know. Or maybe you ordered something else, and you probably wouldn't order that again. But he's just marveling over the, del and, and, and he'll say, you know, um, have a bite. No, 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 you just tell me about it. No, 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 I, you have to, I can't tell you about it. Words will fail. You need to take a bite. See, and until you take a bite, you don't know that experience. All you know is he's really enjoying that piece of meat and you kind of wish you'd ordered it. But you don't, you don't know that what it tastes like. You, you, don't, you have no sense really until you take a bite. There, see, there's, Christians can be tempted to be content to hear about the goodness of God and not take a bite. If, if we don't exercise our faith and, and actually then go to the Lord and, and, and seek to taste him. Well, then we're just missing out on what David calls us here to. Taste. Grab hold. See that the Lord is good. Experience that the Lord is good so that you have a story to tell about the goodness of God. And you might say, well, how do, how do you do that? 
David lists taking refuge in him. Blessed, it's immediately right after. Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's where the blessing comes from. It's from actually taking God as God for yourself. Specifically, it's taking all that God is for you and me in Christ Jesus. As Christ is offered to us in the gospel and saying, I want that. Take the obedience of Christ as your refuge from your sin. Take the faithfulness of Christ as your refuge in your, black, your backsliding. And, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your refuge from shame. And his strength as your refuge from, from your weakness. And his spirit for your comfort. And his name for your identity. And, and all of his perfections. All that he's accomplished for you. And all that he's promised to you. Take it. Take it. And see that it's true. Just this past week, I um, was feeling incredibly uh, just weighed down. Spiritually, emotionally, <clears throat> weighed down. And uh, Joanne and I were out on a, on a date, and I was not very fun at all. Um, she's so patient. And I just share with her, I just feel so, com- just, I'm just weighed down. And... Um, and then we, we got home and Psalm 34 came to mind. Those who look to the Lord are radiant and, and take refuge in God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and that then involves um, uh, taking an, uh, an objective thing that I believe is true. Do I believe God is good? Yes, I absolutely believe God is good. Do I believe God is good for me right now? And that God is sufficient for me right now. And as soon as you ask the question, the answer comes, well, of course, he's sufficient for me right now. And you taste it again, and you rest there. So David says, taste and, and, uh, and uh, take refuge, and then, and then fear the Lord. You see, when, when you've taken refuge in God, this fear of the Lord is, is um, it's, to, it's to be in awe of God, to be overwhelmed by God, to, to, to tremble at his threatenings, but to, to um, embrace all his goodness and his promises. It's, I think of the idea of a, of a, a young boy who just, reveres his daddy is a very good picture. A young boy who's been trained to fear his father in a certain good way, but who, who loves to boast in his dad and who loves the, the, the words of encouragement from his dad, who loves to please his dad. That's, that's how we fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, you as saints. Because those who fear him have no lack. Let God be big in your life, magnificently big, present, beautiful, overwhelming, frightening in one sense, in a, in a true sense, and yet so, so good, so comforting, so that, so that we sense within ourselves this desire, I want to please God. I want to please my Father. And we do that, see, in obedience. Obedience isn't what I do to try to get his affection. Obedience flows from the promise of his affection, the experience of his goodness. Taste first, see, the Lord is good. And then fear him. 
Come, O children, listen to me. Verse 11, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he might see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Fearing the Lord has the feel of repentance, of turning from evil and turning to good. It has the the feel of, I want to please my God. And the confidence in that those who fear him have no lack. And you'll know that. See, when, when that is happening in your life and you just turn to the Lord in that way, the circumstances may not have changed a whit, but everything else has. You have comfort. You have confidence. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that my Father loves me. I know that Jesus Christ cares for me, and that's enough. That's enough. I lack nothing Even in the midst of tears, even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of fear, I don't lack anything. And that's, of course, where we come to that mystery again, because David goes on, many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's it's good that God doesn't tell us in advance what those afflictions would be. We 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 would be overwhelmed. But the whole thing is hard. But, and that's the beautiful word of the gospel, many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, but the afflictions aren't the end of the story. The Lord delivers him out of them all. All of them. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned, will be desolate, Will be, will be abandoned, lost. We're going to be delivered. And not everyone is. David, in the end of Psalm 34 here, clearly explains that, that there are um, those whom God delivers and those whom God destroys. There's an antithesis. So verses 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, but his face is against those who do evil. If you're here tonight and you're just living your life and you're living in sin... You need to know Psalm 34 isn't your psalm. There's an antithesis. Until you repent and turn and cast yourself and taste the goodness of God in Christ. Verse 21, the same. The Lord delivers the righteous from affliction, but the affliction will slay the wicked. David doesn't back down from this. This is is absolutely crystal clear to him. But you see, for those who who come to God in faith and repentance and who find him to be a refuge, this is a tremendous psalm. And brothers and sisters, we, have, we live, as I said, in the much more uh, stage of redemption. We, we have much more than David had. We, we have the fullness of, of Christ. And this psalm is, is, is referenced in the New Testament in a fascinating way. Peter, the, uh, in his first letter, I won't go into it, but Peter references Psalm 34 several times. He, he talks about um, putting aside malicious talk. And if you've tasted, or now that you've tasted, the Lord is good. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 3. And so he's referencing um, the Psalm 34 there. He also references in, in, um, at length, he, he quotes verses, um, verses 10 and following about living a godly life now that we've tasted the goodness of the Lord. But there's a fascinating uh, reference in John chapter 19 where John um, uses 
verse 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, what is, as David's writing that, you think, what is he thinking? He's been on the battlefield. He's seen righteous men broken to bits on the battlefield. Most of their bones broken. So clearly David isn't talking literally, but figuratively. He means that there's going to be no ultimate harm. Affliction will ultimately harm the wicked, but, but none who take refuge in God will be condemned. It's somewhat like Jesus saying, not a hair in your head right, will be lost. But John picks this up in John 19, verse 33, as a divine clue to the work of Christ. So in John 19, 33, John records, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead on the cross, they did not break his legs. That was a common practice. When someone was crucified, um, the soldiers would come at some point, and, and uh, the, the man on the cross would be trying to support himself with his legs so he could breathe. Well, at some point, they would break the legs. He couldn't support himself. Uh, he would collapse, would not be able to breathe, and would die um, from asphyxiation. John says, that didn't happen to Jesus. He was already dead, so one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, evidence that he was dead. He who saw it, John, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. Now, why is John making such a big deal out of this? It seems to be sort of an arcane little factoid about the cross. But John, John is very serious about this. I want you to know I'm telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Have you ever read a, a, a mystery where or, um, there's a, a, something has happened, maybe someone has, has, um, has apparently been captured and, and a friend comes along and is trying to figure out what's happened and then notices a clue. They've left behind some evidence, some thing that might seem insignificant to someone else, but to them it's, it's clear evidence of what's happened, where they are, and what needs to be done. They can put the pieces together. Well, John sees the bones of Jesus are not broken, and to him it's a divine clue. It's not an accident. You see, the whole thing is not an accident. Now, he, I don't think he put this together at the cross. But as he's reflecting on it, this hits him, I think, like a bolt of lightning. That was Scripture being fulfilled. That was a divine clue left by God himself that what happened to Jesus happened by the divine sovereign will of God. It wasn't an awful mistake, which is what John and the disciples thought. It wasn't a tragic ending to the life of Jesus as they thought. It was God at work reconciling sinners to himself. Psalm 34 was being fulfilled in Jesus. Those who take refuge in him will never be ashamed. If you want to taste the goodness of God, you taste it in Jesus. You seek refuge in Him. You trust in Him. You live for Him, and you know that because of Jesus, no matter what the affliction is, no matter, no matter what the circumstances are, 
You are not lost. You are, you are not caught up in a cosmic accident. God is working out his purpose in your life, and you will not be condemned. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's how, friends, you sing in a cave. That's how you sing even when life is fundamentally affliction, and it hurts, and it's hard. Aaron Dengler uh, says this in his, in his article, and I'll wrap with this. He says, suffering for a believer turns our lives into sermons. Suffering may or may not show us what we're made of, as the saying goes, but it will definitely show us and others where our hope is, where our identity and confidence lay. The suffering Christian becomes a form of gospel proclamation to the world. Feed a Christian to the lions or give a Christian some incurable disease and what do you discover? You discover someone who, is ultimately, who ultimately has more invested in the life to come than in the present life. Someone who can face pain and even death with hope, not despair. Strip a Christian of his job and his livelihood and what do you discover? Someone whose identity is not rooted in his profession but in the reality of God's love and Christ's work for him whose confidence rests in God's sovereign provision more than in his bank account. Soak the Christian in trouble and then wring that Christian out. And what will pour from that Christian is confidence that nothing this world throws at him or her can jeopardize his or her treasure, namely the prospect of eternity in God's presence. That's what happens, you see, because of Christ. In the midst of our affliction, we can magnify the Lord. And we call people to come and join us and magnify him with us. And our faces are toward the Lord and there's a radiance that begins to, to glow. A radiance of hope and peace, even joy in the midst of trial and heartache and trouble. There's a, there, there's a foundation. There's a, there's a spring of confidence. Because you see, we, we, we've escaped We've, just like David escaped certain death there in Gath, we've escaped certain death because of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the flood of God's judgment has passed us by as it all fell on him. And in Jesus Christ, we taste the goodness of God. If he loved us when we were yet sinners, so much that he gave his son, how much more? How much more? Will he love and bless you now that you're his child? And so, look, friend, just call you tonight to take Psalm 34 to yourself. Courage, you made to read it this week. Take your trials, your afflictions, your griefs, your pains. Take it and taste the goodness of God. None who look to him shall be condemned. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, we, we are weak, fearful people. And life gets hard and confusing, perplexing. Sometimes we are broken in spirit, crushed in our soul. I thank you so much that David wrote this psalm from a cave as he experienced the beauty of God and the goodness of God in the midst of affliction. I thank you, O oh Father, that because of Jesus Christ, we know no matter what happens that there are no accidents. 
no unfortunate circumstances or misfortunes. We have a loving Heavenly Father who's with perfect wisdom and skill working out his purposes for our eternal joy and for his glory. And even though it hurts, there can be joy and peace and comfort and contentment in difficult places in a way that honors you, bears fruit for the glory of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would make it our commitment to be people who bless the Lord at all times, good times and in bad times, that your praise is continually in our mouth and that our soul boasts in the Lord. Oh God, I pray that we would live in this faith, that we would taste your goodness, each of us, and that our countenance would reflect the kindness and faithfulness and mercy and grace and goodness and power of our God. Please, oh God, do not leave us in our unbelief, but build within us this faith, this beautiful faith. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.